Good morning, church. It is good to see everybody here this morning. I love you, and I am so thankful for you. Thank you for being here this morning. Thank you for the encouragement that you're giving to each other just by being in this room and by lifting your voices up in song together. Thank you for loving Jesus. Thank you for being a part of what he's doing in the world. Thank you for going out this week and not just believing the gospel, but living out the gospel. Isn't it an awesome, an awesome privilege that we get to be a part of what Jesus is doing in the world, that we get to be his hands and his feet and his mouth this week. So thank you for being that. Thank you for being the body of Jesus. We're continuing our series called Motivated, and this morning I want to get into a couple different concepts with you, and I thought it might be helpful if we had a glossary of words, um, and these are, you might call them weird West words, okay, So, because some of them are real, actual words, and others... It's debatable, okay? It's debatable whether they're real or not. They, they all have been used before by other people besides Wes, okay? But uh, whether or not they're real words, that's uh, for you to decide, I guess. But don't Google it in the sermon, okay? Wait till later. Uh, the first one, obviously, is a real word, unmotivated. We know what it is to be unmotivated, right? Lacking the drive to do something, in this case, the right thing. We're all about and we're, we're thinking about taking our next step, whatever that next step is. Maybe it's a relational next step to repair a relationship that needs to be repaired. Maybe it's a spiritual next step and taking the next step in your relationship with God. Maybe it's some other kind of next step that you need to do the next right thing. But sometimes we find ourselves unmotivated and we lack the drive. We just kind of are apathetic about it and we just can't seem to move ourselves or be moved to do the next right thing. The next word, though, is debatable whether it's a real word or not, but I, I like this word mismotivated, right? Mismotivated. So it's not just that you're unmotivated because you're actually doing the right thing. You're motivated, but you're motivated by the wrong motivation. You have the wrong drive. You're doing the right thing, but for the wrong reason. You're doing good, but not because it's good, not in order to please God, not because of the right sort of motivation, but you're doing good maybe to be seen by other people. Maybe you're doing good out of fear. We talked a lot in the first lesson of this series, some of the wrong motivations for doing the right thing. So sometimes we're unmotivated and sometimes we're mismotivated, motivated by the wrong things. And some things that we experience in our life, or maybe even some people in our life, are demotivating, right? That's a real word, right? Demotivating. It means that something is robbing us of motivation, right? Some things that we do, some places that we go, some people that we hang around are demotivating, after we've spent time with them or after we've thought these certain thoughts, after we've hung out in this certain place or after we've done these certain things, we find ourselves demotivated. It's like that activity or that way of thinking or that television show or that thing we looked at on the internet or whatever it is has robbed us of our motivation. 
It has stolen the fuel that's supposed to drive us to do the next right thing. And so if there's such a thing as demotivating, maybe there's such a thing as remotivating, okay? So again, that might not be a real word, but I like it. Remotivating. As Christians, we need to find the things that are remotivating, that motivate us again to do the right thing. And we need to recognize what things in our life are demotivating, What are those things that when we do those activities and we spend time with this way of thinking or in these places or with these people, we find ourselves demotivated? We walk away with a lack of motivation and drive. Or maybe we we walk away mismotivated. We walk away with the wrong motivations. We, We go on doing certain things, but our motivation isn't what it ought to be. And then we ought to recognize the things that are remotivating, the things that build us up to do the right things, that fuel our fire, that fill us with the right sort of motivation. So think on this thought. Whether we find ourselves unmotivated, some of us this morning are unmotivated maybe, or we find ourselves mismotivated, motivated by the wrong sorts of things, we need to limit our exposure to the things that are demotivating, right? We need to recognize what what in my life is demotivating to me? What is robbing me of the motivation that I need to do the next right thing? Or what's causing me to have the wrong sorts of motivations? And we need to limit our exposure to the things that are demotivating and maximize our exposure to that which is remotivating, that fills our, our tank to go out and do the next right thing. And we've talked at length about some of the things that are remotivating. We talked in the first week of this series about how the mercies of God are remotivating, aren't they? The mercies of God, thinking about how God has had mercy on us. You remember we used that example of kintsugi, uh, of the, the pottery that's broken and it's put together with gold, and so that the cracks and the breaks actually make that piece of pottery more valuable, more beautiful, more precious than it was even before it was broken, and how our brokenness, because it's put back together with the mercies of God, and the breaks are where the grace is, because of His grace and His mercy and His love, we are something beautiful that brings glory to God. And so the mercy that He's shown to us, it motivates us to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice which is our spiritual act of service or worship, Romans chapter 12, right? And so thinking on the mercies of God is remotivating, isn't it? That fuels our tank. It puts the right sort of fuel in our tank to go out and do the next right thing. And so when we come here, we think about the mercy God has extended to us that we've all sinned and fallen short of God's glory and that we are saved by an act of his mercy and his grace that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son and that because we believe in him, we won't perish, but we will have eternal life. And so we think on that and then that mercy of his drives us and fuels us to go out and to show mercy to other people. 
It drives us to go out and to offer our bodies, our hands and our feet and our mouth and our eyes and our head and our heart and offer ourselves to God as a living sacrifice. We say, because of what you've done for me, because of what you've done for me, I'm yours. Every bit of me is yours. So the mercies of God are re-motivating. We talked last week about how the future promise of resurrection that my dead body won't stay dead, that I'm going to be raised from the dead, immortal and imperishable, just as Jesus was raised from the dead, I will be raised from the dead, that my mortal body will be redeemed. And that hope, that confidence, that knowledge of what's coming motivates me to do what? To be, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord because we know that our labor in the Lord is not in, remember, in vain. It's not in vain. It's going to pay off. I'm going to be resurrected. I'm going to live forever. I'm going to be immortal. And because I know that's true, it motivates me to be steadfast and movable and always abounding in the work of the Lord. But sometimes I forget that I can't stay dead. I forget about the coming resurrection and I get unmotivated or I get motivated by the wrong sorts of things. And so I need re-motivation. I need to come here and I need you to encourage me about the resurrection. And on days where I get bad news about myself or my family or the people that I love, when I lose the people that I love, I need you to remind me about the resurrection. I need to come here and sing songs with you about the resurrection. I need to come here and sing with you about the day that the trumpet shall sound and the dead in Christ shall be raised. I need you to re-motivate me in the gospel. And so that's what we do here, isn't it? We think on the mercies of God. We think on the resurrection. We think on all of these good things and it re-motivates us to go out on Monday and Tuesday, and Wednesday, and Thursday, and Friday, and Saturday, and take the next step, and do the next right thing. So this morning, we want to think about what sorts of things are demotivating, and what sorts of things are remotivating for Christian living. And, and a great text for that is Philippians chapter 2, and verse 1. Philippians chapter 2, and verse 1. So it starts with, in my translation, it says, so, any other words there? Anybody have a therefore, right? Therefore, so therefore, right, or so, and we've been talking about lots of therefore passages, and Paul goes on to say, so, or therefore, if, if these things are true, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there's any comfort from love, if there's any participation in the Spirit, if there's any affection and sympathy, you see, these are, these are motivating factors, Right? He's about to tell them what they ought to do. He's about to tell them how they ought to live. He's about to tell them what the next step is. But before he gets to that, he wants to remind them of the motivation. If, if there's any encouragement in Christ, have any of y'all been encouraged in Christ? Right? Is there any encouragement in Christ? The answer is obviously yes. If you've been encouraged in Christ, if, if you've received comfort from his love if if you've participated in the spirit 
if there's any affection and sympathy, if these things are true, if your tank is filled with this sort of fuel, encouragement and love and participation in the Spirit, affection and sympathy, if these things are true, then what? Verse 2, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. You see how he says the same mind and the same love and of full accord and of one mind? We have a word for all of those things, don't we? Unity. Unity. Unity in the church ought to be fueled by what? All the motivating factors he just said. Encouragement in Christ. Comfort from love. Participation in the Spirit. The sympathy and the affection that we have because of what Jesus has done for us. The Gospel ought to motivate our unity. Sometimes we try to drive unity or motivate unity with the wrong sort of motivation, don't we? But why? Why is it so important that you love me even when I'm being hard to get along with? Why is it so important that you love each other even when each other is being hard to get along with? Why is it so important that you be of the same mind and have the same love and be in a full accord and of one mind? Because this is what the gospel fuels in us. This is what it motivates us to do. Paul says, if these things are true, if you really have been encouraged in Christ, if you really have experienced His love, if you really are participating in the Spirit, then this is what the result should look like. Unity. Unity. Why, why do I love you? Why do you love me? Why do we love each other? Why do we get along? Why do we say, I'm going to stick this out? We're going to figure this out. We don't always do that, though, do we? Because sometimes we say, you offended me. I'm done. I'm out. I don't like what you said. I don't like what you did. I don't like how you are. I don't, know how, I don't like how you look. I'm gone. But Paul says, no, listen, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if you've participated in the Spirit, if you have this affection and sympathy and love, if you've experienced these things in Jesus, then this is the result. Same mind, same love, being in full accord and of one mind, we are together. See, the gospel results in a different way of living. Not just like what we think of when we say purity. It is that, right? Like we don't do the bad stuff we used to do. But it, it results in a different way of doing relationships. Doesn't it? I mean, what, what, could, what could possibly, what could possibly bring together zealots and Pharisees? What could bring together tax collectors and zealots? What could bring together Jews and Gentiles? What could bring together Republicans and Democrats and Independents? 
What could bring together Americans and people of every nationality? What could be people together of different ethnicities? What could bring about this sort of unity that says, even though we came from a different background, and even though we have a different way of thinking, and even though I don't always agree with you, and even though I don't always like what you say or what you do, I'm in it with you. We're family, and I'm going to stick with you. What in the world could motivate that sort of tenacious unity? Jesus, Jesus, his love participating in the spirit, this love and sympathy and affection that is generated and produced by the gospel, this is how we fuel unity. This is how unity ought to be motivated. Now, look at verse three. Do nothing, how much? How much? Do nothing, nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more, oh, this one's tough, church. Count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of of others. I mean, this gets right at the heart of the discussion of motivation, doesn't it? Do nothing that's motivated by selfish ambition or conceit. How much? Nothing. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, in humility, nothing from selfishness, everything from humility. So here's my big question for us is, What demotivates us from living a humble life? Humility is challenging, isn't it? And what sorts of things rob us of the motivation to live a humble life? Well, I guess it would be anything that encourages us to be self-absorbed. Right? Because selfishness, selfish ambition and vain conceit is the opposite of humility. So what would demotivate us to live a humble life? Anything that promotes self-absorption. And self-absorption can have two extremes. On the one hand, it's anything that pr- promotes self-aggrandizement. Right? Anything that says, man, you're awesome. You're awesome. You ought to just sit around and think about how awesome you are because you're just awesome. You're fantastic and everything you think is right and everything you feel is right and you're just, you ought to be the center of everybody's universe, right? Is there any of that in our world today? Yeah, for sure. But then on the other hand, there's maybe a lot of us that aren't on that end of the spectrum, but maybe a lot of us, me for sure, have a tendency to throw a pity party for ourselves. And even self-pity can be a form of self-absorption. When we sit around and say, I'm a horrible person, I'm no good, I mess up all the time, I've done so many things wrong, everybody ought to hate me, I don't even know why anybody likes me, why does anybody stay around me? All of that is all about me. Me, 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 me. Anything that promotes self-absorption, anything that causes us to think about ourselves all of the time, especially to the exclusion of the people around us, is demotivating us to live 
a humble life. I love the way C.S. Lewis puts it. In Mere Christianity, when he's talking about pride, he says this, do not imagine that if you meet a really humble man, that he will be what most people call humble. He will not be the sort of person that's always telling you that he's nobody. Right? If you meet a humble person, he's not going to be like, I'm just a horrible person. Because humble people aren't talking about themselves. And anybody who's telling you what a nobody he is, is thinking about himself. Probably, he says, probably all you will think about him is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. If you do dislike him, it will be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. He will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. Humility isn't about self-pity. It's about self-forgetfulness. But nearly everything in our culture, nearly everything in our culture, is designed to promote self-absorption, isn't it? I mean, every commercial on television wants you to think about your needs, your wants, your desires. And almost everywhere we go, we have constant reminders about your reputation, your career, your education, your relationships. Everything is about you. What do I look like? How do I feel? What do I want? What do people think about me? And all of that stuff, all of that noise is demotivating to living a humble life. We have to find a way, don't we? We have to find a way to limit our exposure to all of that noise that says you ought to be the center, not only of your own universe, but you ought to be the center of everybody's universe. Think about yourself all the time. Think about your wants. Think about your needs. If we're going to live a self-forgetful life, we need a different sort of motivation. What could possibly, what could possibly, especially in a culture like ours, cause or motivate any of us to live a self-forgetful life. Not a life full of self-pity where we thought, think about how bad we are, but a life where we almost just forget about self and think about others. What could possibly motivate us to live that sort of life? I'm glad you asked. The gospel, right? Look at chapter, or same chapter, verse 5, Philippians 2, 5. Have this mind among yourselves. Have this mind among yourself. This is how you should think. Think like this. Let this be your mentality. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. I love that phrase, don't you? It's yours in Christ Jesus. Not only is this Jesus' way of thinking, this is Jesus' mentality, this is Jesus' mindset, but it's yours now in Christ Jesus. This is the mind you get, this is the way of thinking you get, this is the mentality you get when you're in Christ Jesus. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. I mean, that's a hard sentence that's been debated and translated all different kinds of ways. But essentially, I think what 
Paul is saying is that even though Jesus is God, Jesus didn't give up being God, but he didn't hold on to, tenaciously grab onto and seek after and say, I'm not letting go of my rights. I'm not letting go of my privileges. Don't you know that as the son, I have equality with the father? He didn't hold on to that stuff. He didn't demand, I'm going to keep all of these things. But instead, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. I love the way the New Living Translation puts verses 5 through 7. It says, you must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. Paul says, your practicals, practically speaking, your way of thinking about other people needs to be this. Consider them more significant than yourself, right? That's the hard sentence, isn't it? Consider them more significant than yourself. Not, not what we tend to think of, not as your equal. Because that's what we tend to do, isn't it? We Consider other people to be your equal. And that, for some of us, might be hard enough. Well, they're not my equal. I've, I've worked harder than them. I'm smarter than them. I have more letters behind my name. I've done more. I've achieved more. Whatever. It would be hard enough just to consider everyone to be your equal. But that's not what the gospel teaches us. The gospel teaches us to look at and consider and count others to be more significant than yourself. And what could possibly... What could possibly give you that sort of mentality? What could possibly cause you to think about other people as being your superior? That's what that phrase literally means. More significant means to be your superior. What could cause you to think that way? Well, Paul says the cross. The cross causes you to consider other people to be more significant than yourself. So here's sort of our phrase to end on, and I know it's kind of an equation, but the cross results in a mentality that says you are greater than me. I mean, we know, we know that literally speaking, everybody is equally valuable. We know that, right? Everyone is equally valuable and equally loved by God, but the cross teaches me this is how Jesus thought. Jesus thought, I am more, literally, I am more significant than everybody else because I am God. I am greater and superior to everyone, but I'm going to give up that position and those privileges and those rights, and I'm going to empty myself and take on the form of a servant, and I'm going to look at them, you and me, as being more significant than myself. And then Paul says, because you've put on this mentality, this is what the cross motivates you to do, is to consider others to be more significant than yourself. To look at every single person you meet 
when you come across somebody in the grocery store, when somebody cuts you off in traffic, when someone has a need, when you see your brother or sister or you see your neighbor, you consider them to be more significant than yourself. Not because I'm bad, right? It's not about self-pity. It's not saying I'm, I'm horrible and they're better than me and they're better than me anyway. No, that's still thinking about yourself. The goal here is to forget about ourselves for a minute and consider them to be more significant than ourselves because that's the way Jesus has treated us. What would that look like? I mean, really, stop just for a second and think about what would that look like? What would it look like to consider other people more significant than yourself? To say, this is how Jesus has treated me. Jesus has treated me, even though he is God, he's treated me as more significant than himself. So now my mentality towards everybody else is that. What does that look like? What would it look like if you treated the average person like a celebrity? I mean, we kind of know whether we've seen a celebrity or not. We kind of know how we might act. You know who that guy is? You know who that is? You see who that is? And what if, like, what if a celebrity came up to you and said, I mean, somebody, I mean, super famous, right? I mean, big time athlete or big movie star, or TV star, somebody you know and somebody you really want to get their autograph. And instead of getting their autograph, they come up to you and they say, listen, I know, I know this is huge imposition. I'm so embarrassed, but I forgot my wallet at home and I don't have any money for my lunch. Is there any way, is there any way you could buy my lunch? You'd be like, yeah, I can't wait to tell my wife this story. You know, like, I mean, I got to buy his lunch today. And you buy, I mean, you wouldn't even think twice about it, right? But what if a stranger came up to you? What, what if we literally decided I'm going to look at every stranger and every brother and sister as somebody that's a celebrity because in Christ Jesus, that's this new way of thinking. What about people that have hurt you or offended you or done something against you? I mean, that's what we've done to God, isn't it? We've offended him, but Jesus emptied himself, took on the form of a servant, and served us in spite of what we've done. What if we were willing to do that for other people? What if we were really willing to forgive and put things behind us and love people in spite of what happened yesterday, in spite of what happened last year? and put away bitterness, because that's what you would do if you really considered others to be greater and more significant than yourself. You'd really listen to people. Instead of, instead of looking for compliments, and be like, man, I hope they tell me how good I look today. I hope somebody tells me how good I look today. I hope somebody compliments me today. I hope somebody builds me up today. Instead of looking for compliments or fishing for compliments, we just genuinely can't wait to tell other people how awesome they are. Are. I mean, what if that was our mission? I'm going to come to church and I can't wait to tell at least 10 people how awesome they are and how big of a difference they're making in the world. What if we really looked at others and considered them to be greater and more significant than ourselves? What if we treated the lowest person on the social ladder as if they were above us on the social ladder? I know especially when I was in school, junior high, high school. But let's not pretend like it's a teenage thing. That's a human thing, isn't it? To sort of figure out where we are in the social structure of things and sort of live that out. But Jesus teaches us that as the Son of God, He became nothing 
and served us as if we were his superiors. He washed our feet and he teaches us to put on this mentality. What would that look like in your life? I think about this story that I heard this week. It came out recently. This guy named Kevin was leaving a, a, a ball game and an Uber driver named LaTanya picked him up. So Kevin gets in LaTanya's uh, Uber car and is driving along. That's the next slide. And, and they're driving along and she's telling him about her life and she's trying to raise three boys, I think it was, on her own. And she was trying to get her college degree, uh, but she owed the school $700 in back in back money and overdue fines and fees and she couldn't pay that and so she couldn't go back to school she couldn't finish her degree and Kevin was just listening to her story and after he got out of the car and went home he was thinking about her life and he decided he was going to go down to the university and pay that $700 he did she went back to school she got her degree right and now how many of us get into an uber or go through a lane at the grocery store or pass someone, or have a conversation with someone, and they tell us about their needs, but we just don't think about their needs as being more significant than our needs. I mean, Kevin had a lot going on in his life at that moment. A lot of things he could have spent that money on, but he considered her to be more significant than himself. Now, I don't want us to take Kevin and Latanya's story and say that ought to motivate us to go and live this out. It's the cross. The cross is what motivates us to say you are greater than me. You are more significant than me. Let's leave here this morning and every Sunday. This is why Sunday is so important. This is why Sunday is so important to come and break the bread and share the cup and sing these songs and pray these prayers together so that we live, leave here filled with the mind of Christ and that the mind of Christ would motivate us every moment of every day to look at other people and say, you are more significant than me. That's the life that we stepped into in our baptism, isn't it? It's the life we received, that we received the Son of God washing our feet and giving himself, dying a death, even a death on a cross, so that we could live. And we're not only embracing that for ourselves, we're stepping into that lifestyle to say, this is the sort of life, this is the sort of thinking, this is the sort of mentality that I want to be raised up to have, to go forth every single day to live out the gospel of Jesus, treating others as more significant than ourselves. And maybe there's somebody here this morning and you're ready to receive those blessings in Christ by being baptized into Christ, or maybe you just need to come back home, or maybe you need prayers or encouragement. We are here for one another. We are here for you, and we want to help you any way we can. You can come forward as we stand and sing.